This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. There have been a number of vaccines that have been previously developed for coronaviruses, not this specific one. And the world, again, is pulling together everyone who actually has one of these vaccines and seeing what we can do uh, to accelerate the development. But what I can say is that even with the most rapid um, acceleration, um, I don't believe we are going to see a vaccine um, that is ready probably for, for a year. Bill C-13, the COVID-19 Emergency Response Act, was the Canadian government's legislative response to the coronavirus pandemic. In addition to a host of economic measures, the bill included some unexpected patent law provisions designed to speed access to essential medicines, devices, or treatments. The government explained the reforms by noting that these provisions will help ensure that the existence of a patent covering an existing or new vaccine or treatment is not a barrier to securing needed supplies when those supplies cannot be secured from the patentee. Matthew Herder is the director of the Health Law Institute at Dalhousie University, where he teaches primarily in the Faculty of Medicine with a cross-appointment to the Schulich School of Law. He joined me on the podcast to discuss the new Canadian rules, the use of compulsory licensing to enhance access to medicines, and other innovative approaches to overcoming potential access barriers that can be raised by intellectual property laws. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Happy to be here. How are you managing? I know everybody's, of course, at home and, and with, if they can and, and struggling along the way or trying to make the best of the situation. How are you doing? We're doing okay. Uh, it's, you know, we're very privileged. It's, of course, stressful to have kids at home full time and trying to finish the academic term. But uh, my work in drug policy, you know, I'm, I'm exposed to and aware of lots of folks who are uh, in carceral settings, who are people who use drugs, um, who are in far, far, far more dire circumstances. So when I catch myself feeling a bit down, I try to take a bit of perspective, frankly. That is a good message. And I think for many in the academic community, it's a tough end of term, but uh, we've also are really fortunate to be able to, to do our jobs the way we, we do them being able to, to work from home. So, so you mentioned your work in dealing with drugs, patent law, um, medicines, and a range of issues really makes you an ideal guest to deal with today's topic. And, and as you know, the government's coronavirus legislative response, the COVID-19 Emergency Response Act, included some unexpected patent law provisions. Why don't we start off, if you can walk me through a little bit uh, what they included in the bill with respect to patent. Sure. Um, and as you know, it's, it's a pretty wide-ranging piece of legislation, but the patent law stuff was unexpected, and it introduced essentially a new government use power into the Patent Act. There are some there, and we can talk about those a little bit later already. Um, but this government use patent power, which some would probably more uh, typically describe as a compulsory licensing power, essentially allows in the context of a public health emergency, such as the one we're in the midst of, um, 
the Minister of Health to uh, apply to the Commissioner of Patents uh, for permission for the government or any other person that the government wants to sort of give permission to make, use, uh, manufacture, sell uh, a patented invention, whether that's a, a medicine, a vaccine, for example, a diagnostic test that's the subject of a patent, any invention. Uh, this government use provision or compulsory licensing power says when we're in the middle of a public health emergency, uh, you can use that power to try and ramp up the supply of the kinds of things we need. We know we're sort of uh, um, behind schedule or not where we would like to be in terms of having anything to really deal with COVID-19. So this is, this is a huge power that's a welcome addition. And it's different from uh, the way the government use powers that were already part of the Patent Act. It's, it's, it's easier to use, I would like to think, than the, the power that was already embedded in the legislation. Um, it says, you know, there are certain um, constraints around it. For one, you have to demonstrate that there is actually a public health emergency. Um, but that seems like an easy hurdle to meet right now. Um, there, the, the patentee has to be paid some amount uh, for essentially the government overriding their patent rights and allowing someone else to produce the invention. Um, and uh, as we may want to talk about later as well, there's a sort of time frame that applies to this power. But it's a welcome addition to the legislation. And, and hopefully, if we get some useful things to deal with uh, coronavirus, um, the pandemic that we're in, uh, that the government will take advantage of it. Okay, so if I'm understanding correctly, patent law already has elements of compulsory licensing, but this it feels as if the way from the way you've described it is a bit of a fast track to ensure that in this moment of a public health crisis, the government can move swiftly to ensure that patents don't prove a barrier to access and development around certain technologies. Yeah, and they do that in a really straightforward way. So the government use provision in the legislation before uh, these amendments that uh, Bill C-13 introduced, um, the COVID uh, legislation, um, required essentially to, to use that kind of power to get someone else to supply um, a particular patented invention, uh, you would have to first demonstrate that you've sort of made an effort to go to the person that has the patent, go to the company, and try to negotiate a license from them to produce the invention. And you have to sort of provide some evidence that you attempted to get a license but couldn't. And that's why uh, the government use power is necessary. Uh, perhaps not surprisingly, this power has very seldom been used. The last court decision about whether it was a, an appropriate use of it, to my knowledge, is from 1982. So not used very often and probably a big part of that is the fact that you have to show that you tried to get a, uh, a license in the first place. So with this new government use power, it's not about having that um, prior uh, negotiation with the patent holder. Uh, if there's a public health emergency and you demonstrate that to the appropriate authorities, um, confirmation from a chief public health officer. There's no one who's going to deny that in the current circumstances. Um, and then you need to provide sort of information about who would actually 
benefit from this uh, government override of the patented invention, who's in a position to actually produce the patented invention, provide that information as well. But you don't have to negotiate for a period of time first uh, before this this power can be invoked. So it's um, it's it's a lot, I think, uh, more practical to invoke this power than than the government use power that was already in our patent act. Okay, so well, that certainly sounds like like a positive. I mean, given that the the current power is so rarely used, perhaps to try to spark change, but the rate with a series of legislative barriers you just identified, it uh, it, it isn't hasn't been widely used in the current environment. This one certainly could be used. I know you've expressed some concerns about. The, the way the government's included this in the bill, particularly with respect to some of the timelines for the provision. Do you think it's going to be effective? What were some of the concerns that you had? Yeah, so um, it sort of stood out to me when I read the legislation that uh, this um, compulsory licensing power that's tied to a public health emergency, it specifically states that it cannot be used after September 30th of this year. And most of the forecasts I've seen of when uh, we might know that an existing medicine, an antiviral, um, shows some level of effectiveness against uh, coronavirus, or uh, and certainly in a vaccine, the time to sort of generate that evidence to test it in clinical trials with people who are in the midst of this pandemic, it's gonna it's gonna be longer than that. Now, I certainly hope I'm wrong. If if we can produce a vaccine that demonstrates efficacy um, it, uh, to a significant extent, then great, we can use this power before then. But uh, the the immediate thought is if you already know. Um, that it's going to take longer than that in the most likely case to have a vaccine ready or, or a drug ready, then why not have a later extension? So that's one concern. Of course, you know, uh, the government acted quickly. Um, I'm sure the political will, if, if, some, if a vaccine is progressing nicely through clinical trials, but it's not looking good for September 30th, I'm sure the political will will gather quickly and, and amend the law so that this power can be used after the end of September. Um, but, you know, if you think a little bit more about this, the, a question I would raise and others have raised, uh, Joel Lechkin, who's a physician researcher, who has raised this already in the public sphere, why do we need a deadline at all? As long as this power is tied to a public health emergency and you have to demonstrate there is one, um, it seems like a good thing to have this power at our disposal. If, if one company, for example, can't make enough vaccine for the demand, the level of um, people who are or population who are going to be affected by something like this pandemic, um, it might be a good thing to have this power uh, to get other companies to produce the vaccine as well. So I'm not sure we need a deadline at all. Um, uh, and I think we should keep thinking about that moving forward. Yeah. Do you know why the deadline was included? Is it, is it that some of the pharmaceutical companies or device manufacturers were concerned with the prospect of this kind of provision and this was seen as a, as a, as a way to, to keep them on board? Or is it just that our, our whole sense of how intellectual property rules roll out is such that a derogation from some of the very high standards ought to be temporary, even as, as you say, if this true, if this is truly only exercised in these extraordinary sorts of circumstances, it's hard to know why it shouldn't be applicable in those circumstances without this kind of deadline. Yeah, I mean the the 
The truth is we don't know, Michael. I mean, the bill, this bill, as, as it hit the press, um, was introduced quickly to the government's credit as it needed to be, but there was a version that uh, was changed before it was passed by Parliament. And to my knowledge, at least, or the last time I tried to find it, um, the, the original bill, not the final version, has not been made public. Um, so I don't know if this change happened uh, because of some pushback at the last minute, um, but it's also possible that um, someone inside uh, the circle of people involved in drafting it thought this will be a good way to sort of uh, appease those kinds of larger industrial interests that that don't like patent rights being interfered with under any circumstances. So who knows? Uh, perhaps we'll hear more about that at, at a later date. Uh, but your guess is as good as mine. That's, an, that's interesting. So Canada's moved forward in this way. Have other countries also been looking at compulsory licensing or similar kinds of provisions in response to the current pandemic? Yeah, there's a lot of chatter. Um, uh, Israel uh, has, in fact, already used an existing, so they didn't change their law. They took advantage of a legal provision, which apparently has been in their law since the 1960s, uh, to have a generic version of an existing treatment, not for coronavirus, but for HIV, known as the, the trade name of the drug is Coletra. And I guess there's some scientific theory that um, suggests this might be helpful with coronavirus as well. And so they've used this flexibility uh, in their law that already existed before the pandemic to approve the importation of a generic version of Coletra. And to its credit, the company involved, AbbVie, has basically said, we're not going to enforce our IP rights with respect to that medicine uh, during this health crisis right now. So, so that's one country that is using the existing power. Chile passed uh, a resolution, as I understand it. I'm not, uh, I haven't seen the original law. It's not, to my knowledge, available in English at present. But they passed a resolution um, essentially saying that they would uh, permit the government to issue compulsory licenses for any medicines, vaccines, or diagnostics that can be used to fight this pandemic. Um, as Interestingly, as part of that resolution, they also said uh, that the government, uh, the health ministry in Chile would ask the World Health Organization to collect information on R&D costs related to all those products that might be relevant for COVID-19. So it's sort of expanding the scope a little, that, that resolution from Chile. Um, the other thing that's important to keep, in, so to my knowledge, those are the two examples that have happened, although I think there's a sort of global conversation about whether other changes in the law are necessary or what else we might need to do. It is important to point out that compulsory licensing as a matter of international law, so the TRIPS agreement, has since its inception in the late 90s, 1999 if I'm not mistaken, has had compulsory licensing provisions. Um, and since the Doha decision in 2001, um, it's been pretty clear that those provisions can be used in the context of a public health uh, emergency such as this. And so, and it's similar to what uh, essentially the changes in Canadian law um, have made really clear as well. So the normal, in the normal instance before 
Canada passed uh, these changes to the Patent Act in the last week or so. It's, it, it was possible, uh, although it didn't occur very often as we discussed, to get a compulsory license from the government of a patented invention if you tried to negotiate in good faith, but it got nowhere with the patentee. Um, that was true under TRIPS. And then as well, there's this other provision, uh, Article 31, which allows for uh, a, a compulsory license, um, or it's consistent with TRIPS, to have a compulsory license issued by a particular country uh, in the context of a national emergency or circumstances of extreme emergency without having to go through that negotiation process beforehand. So, so the international framework for IP is sort of um, uh, always, at least on its literal wording, said compulsory licensing is a possibility um, because of uh, the political economy we live in with the powerful nature of the interests involved, um, those compulsory licenses, again, haven't been used very much at all. It's interesting to see the discussion sort of uh, uh, being resurrected in light of this emergency. The other thing I'd like to raise, and, and we might get into this a bit later as well, but you know, the compulsory licensing uh, piece to this is really important to have in place when we get something that's useful, but we're not th there yet. And so I think uh, what's really important in an immediate sense is the fact that at the level of scientific and institutional practice, you're also seeing this huge uh, effort to share information and to forego intellectual property in various ways. Uh, in an effort to sort of make sure we can move this along more efficiently than if we all sort of pursue our own work in various silos. And so um, I think it's really important to sort of tie together the fact that there's been a discussion about compulsory licensing, which needs to happen now. So we're ready when we get interventions, hopefully that work, uh, to make sure that the supply meets the demand. But there's also these changes that we can see on the ground in scientific practice right now uh, at the level of funding agencies um, that say data sharing so that we can uh, proceed as efficiently as, as possible is, is the new norm. Um, and so that's, that's really important as well. Yeah, no, I'm glad you raised that. I spoke with Heather Joseph from Spark. Uh, for an episode a few weeks back, focusing on the role of open access and access to research in the area. And that has only, of course, accelerated since, since that episode, since we talked, because, because of that interest. Now, I know you did some really interesting research on the development of an Ebola vaccine and the role that public funding and support played. And I think you interestingly used access to information documentation as, as part of that research. Can you describe a bit what you found there? And then we can think a bit about how that might apply in the current situation? Sure. Um, so at the height of the West African uh, Ebola epidemic in 2014-15, um, a story ran in the New York Times uh, saying promising Ebola vaccine sat on the shelf. And that was a vaccine that was discovered and developed um, at a government uh, lab in Winnipeg, the National Microbiology Laboratory. Now, sort of the cornerstone in, a, in terms of the scientific infrastructure that's part of the Public Health Agency of Canada. When the, when the work began, PHAC didn't even exist yet. SARS hadn't happened, but um, it soon did. 
So that vaccine, so we were curious, did it actually sit on the shelf for years, this promising vaccine that this New York Times reporter was writing about? So we filed some um, access to information requests off to PHAC in, I think, December 2014. And it took uh, a lot of time to actually get the government records, but we got uh, thousands of pages and were basically able to figure out what happened from uh, the start of this work on the vaccine, which goes back to the late 90s when this researcher's, researcher came over from Germany named Heinz Feldman, uh, who really kick-started work in this area in Winnipeg. Um, and they had filed a patent application by 2002. By 2004, 2005, they had shown like incredible results in preclinical work. So that's animal studies, up to 100% efficacy. Uh, despite that, um, you know, the, the, the typical model is the academic or the government lab does the discovery work, does the preclinical work, uh, and then you use the IP, you use the patent to try and structure a deal with a private sector partner and they'll take it forward. Um, there, was no, there was no private sector interest in this. And so this government lab kept doing the work on its own. It secured some funding, even when that was hard to come by during the uh, the reign of the Harper government at the time. Um, it went out and procured clinical grade vaccine from a German manufacturer. Um, and a deal did come about uh, through, I think, a sort of personal connection between the former postdoc uh, and people in Winnipeg uh, who had moved by 2007 or so to a biotech company, a small startup company in Iowa was uh, connected to Iowa State University. And so they created this patent license uh, to commercialize the vaccine. Remember, it had shown such promise in animal studies. So the next step was trying to get ready for our phase one clinical trial. Um, but what we could see through the documents that we obtained was that all of the work that happened uh, prior to the 2014-15 West African epidemic was done by the public sector lab or substantially coordinated by the lab. And, you know, so it, this case study that we developed really sort of stands in stark contrast to the typical narrative, which is only through public-private partnerships can you advance the stuff. Only the private sector has the capacity to get something through the regulatory process to manufacture a vaccine. We saw in black and white in the documents we obtained that the government lab actually did a lot of that downstream work. It problem-solved many technical challenges in the manufacturing process. And so we think it's an important story about the capacity of the public sector to do so much more. Um, and when we knew all along that, you know, there's not a big market incentive to develop an Ebola vaccine. Um, it's not uh, predictable when these outbreaks will be and it disproportionately affects the world's poor. Um, why are we sort of doing business as usual? Why are we trying to patent and license out to the private sector? Um, it just just doesn't make any sense. We need a new approach. And so something that we think has promise uh, in that case, and certainly with respect to coronavirus, is just a radically more open approach to doing research that is not tied to market rewards in the same way that uh, many, lots of research uh, today is. So we think that has lots of promise. We think uh, the sort of uh, relying on private sector interest uh, probably created delays. And it 
cabin the amount of resources that were devoted on the government lab. They tried as, even as some of the main scientists left to sort of keep this project going, there was a heroic effort by one scientist in particular named Dr. Judy Alamonti, who has since unfortunately passed away from cancer. Um, but she carried on the work basically on a shoestring budget uh, by herself in Winnipeg and without her contributions, I don't think there would have been a vaccine ready for clinical trials in the midst of that epidemic. Um, and yet because of this norm of patenting and licensing out, um, and thank goodness we have an industry partner, I think it really sort of cabined the amount of resources that were given to the public sector lab, even though they demonstrated they could do so much more than just the discovery and preclinical work. So we think it's an, it's an important example that raises questions about do we have to rely on this model to get drugs and vaccines to market? Is, are there important ways in which we should deviate from that um, when the kinds of health challenges we're trying to address are different, where the, the market returns are not as predictable? Um, and I think that explains, or that, that set of questions relates to why we don't have anything for coronavirus uh, these days. Yeah, given, just to finish that thought, given that, coronaviruses themselves are not particularly new, but there just hasn't been the sort of development, notwithstanding the rush now to try to engage with COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, the main set of incentives that structure downstream development have to do with um, various kinds of incentives that are now baked into the regulatory system and patent law. And Patent law doesn't necessarily do a good job of uh, rewarding work into drug targets that have a high public health value. What it does do is say um, you should focus on things that are easier to appropriate and where the rewards are more predictable. So I'm not saying cancer is a small issue. It's a humongous issue. It is many diseases, not one. Um, but it is predictable in a way that many infectious disease outbreaks are not. And so it's not surprising that we see the vast majority of um, drug discovery and development go in that direction. If we want to look at other kinds of health problems, we need other kinds of incentives and structures to encourage that. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's interesting, and it now feels like the right time to be asking these kinds of questions and thinking about more innovative or at least different approaches to try solve to try to solve some of these public health problems. I know that there's been another a number of other interesting initiatives around how do you counter some of the barriers sometimes that arise from an IP or patent perspective. For example, Costa Rica's proposed pooling patents. Uh, you have a sense of how uh, patent pools might work in this context. Well, there are some existing examples, um, and and there's lots of folks um, uh, who've helped develop those patent pools in the past uh, for other kinds of things that similar to this or Ebola that disproportionately affect the world's poor, or um, it's they're they're not predictable in the same way that other kinds of health problems are. Um, at a basic level, uh, uh, what a patent pool does is it tries to um, take away the problem of transaction costs. So instead of if you have an intervention um, 
and you've got to talk and it's paired with a diagnostic test and you've got to get permission just to put a really simple example out there from the, the people who have the patent on the diagnostic test, as well as the people who own the, the drug, um, that asking for per- permission twice can be take you twice as long. So a patent pool tries to bring together all of the rights into one place. Um, and so you essentially have a one-stop shop if you're trying to get access to a particular intervention. Um, and so you see the Costa Rican government, uh, the president, in fact, asked uh, the director general of the WHO to sort of set up a repository of information on diagnostic tests, medical devices, uh, drugs, vaccines, and set up essentially that kind of collection of intellectual property rights Um, patents included, uh, and makes it easy for others to either pay some kind of um, uh, licensing fee or perhaps even uh, freely available uh, to governments to use. Um, So I think that's really important. What it doesn't really solve, um, apart from the transaction cost problem, is do you have another entity that's capable of producing the thing that you now have permission to produce? And so um, all of these things tend to assume that there's a willing and able entity to produce something up to regulatory standards, up to scientific standards. And that's not always clear, particularly in some parts of the world. So um, while we've seen, you know, an array of new actors in the vaccine production space, I'm still not sure, particularly for something as uh, widespread as COVID-19, that the capacity is sufficiently distributed. So I think a patent pool is uh, uh, necessary, but not sufficient. Okay, interesting. One other approach that we've seen, and it's a bit of a nascent one, comes from the law professor community, led by, in this case, Mark Lemley, a professor in the United States, who have launched an open COVID pledge. Is there much prospect, you think, for essentially a voluntary approach where companies and researchers come together to say they will be open and do so on a voluntary basis, recognizing the urgency that the, the globe is facing in the current uh, situation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important in the sense that it contributes to this push for a whole new approach, right? More openness, um, a policy of forbearance or not enforcing intellectual property rights. But the pledge, in my view, I, I think it's important in terms of signaling those norms and aspirations. But it's essentially just a pledge not to do anything with IP rights that already exist. And it, it doesn't even go so far as, at least as I understand it, not to seek IP or future IP. It's just sort of saying, if we have any patent rights in the midst of this pandemic, we're not going to use those rights to stop anyone from producing something. So I think that's laudable and signaling. Uh, We need to shy away from any kind of activity like that, that, um, and it contributes to the evolving norm of openness and sharing. Um, But I, I, you know, it, it, doesn't go as far as what we just talked about in terms of a patent pool and bringing those rights together. So you know that you have freedom to operate or freedom to produce. Um, and it certainly in no way addresses the sort of, do you have someone who can actually supply the good in question uh, for a particular jurisdiction? So, so those problems still remain, but I, I think it's, you know, I'm, I'm glad that pledge exists. I think it speaks to what lots of scientists are already doing on the ground in terms of just putting up data um, uh, for others to scrutinize uh, through preprints um, and, 
you know, I have lots of questions about what's happening with the rash of new funding that's in Canada and other places to develop treatments and so on. I know that for some of the funding, um, particularly stuff that uh, is coming out of CIHR, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research, they've signed on to this joint statement uh, from the Wellcome Trust to basically put all of the data out there as quickly as possible, uh, which is a good thing. But for some of the other pieces of funding that have come online, like there was a deal announced a day or two ago for $78 million to a company called Spartan uh, to produce um, some new testing that uh, will be much faster um, to figure out if people actually have the virus or not, which sounds great, but I want to know, you know, what are the terms of that funding, for example? Um, how well does that test work if we suddenly get a you know a ton of false positives but no one's actually really checked in their testing technology that that's a concern so um i hope that funders in canada and beyond are uh, just importing this language, which is out there, frankly, to make sure that there's open data sharing uh, for various interventions that are going to be needed um, and make that a norm as well. Okay, so lots happening. Uh, a lot of it, a lot of experimentation, some of which hopefully will bear fruit, but at the same time, some questions and a need to make uh, openness when it comes to the research and the data a standard to ensure that we can move as quickly as possible and build essentially, essentially together uh, as scientists around the globe uh, work to address this problem. Indeed. Okay. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. You're most welcome. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LawBites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.